morning. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. For why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of the greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. It's the word of the Lord. All right. So every gospel writer uh, starts their story a little bit differently. Matthew starts with Jesus' genealogy leading up to Joseph, and then he tells about Joseph's role in Christ's birth. Mark's story skips the whole birth narrative, and he goes right to John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus in the desert. John starts his gospel with a beautiful introduction highlighting uh, the eternal nature of the Son of God and how he's come to dwell among us. Luke chooses to start his gospel in the temple in Jerusalem with a barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he does this because he wants to communicate something very intentional. And it's something that I think we often miss when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We often hear about um, Christmas as uh, the story of God giving the the best gift to us, his son. Um, We sometimes uh, think of it as, you know, Jesus was born to die so that we could get into heaven someday. And that's all true, Um, but the story of Christmas is really about a a shift, a huge shift, a holy shift. Have you ever experienced a shift in your life, something where everything changes? And I'm not talking about something big like the loss of a family member or the loss of a job, but a small internal shift, something that at first doesn't seem like much, but something happens and then you see everything differently. I experienced a shift like this in 2015 in Ferguson, Missouri. It was about a year and a half after Michael Brown had been killed and a year after Darren Wilson's, um, it it had been announced that he wouldn't be charged for the murder. And at that time, my title within our varsity was urban program director and I ran the urban plunge programs in Cleveland. And I was in Ferguson with other urban program directors from around the country. And throughout the previous year, I'd seen news reports about what was going on in Ferguson. And from what I'd seen on the news, I'd kind of gathered an idea of what was going on there. But once we were actually there, hearing the stories from people who were there the day that Michael Brown was killed, um, people who witnessed things that I had never seen reported on the news, 
I realized that the story that I had kind of gathered in my head based on media reports wasn't really close to the actual story of what happened in Ferguson. What I'd seen on the news was a story from the perspective of outsiders. And from that perspective, the city was in total chaos, and the people who were protesting were depicted as violent, irrational miscreants, people who thought so little of their, of their community that they were burning it to the ground. Now, I knew that a lot of that was um, just typical media sensationalism, because you know violence and riots, that sells news. Uh, so I knew things weren't probably quite what was being portrayed, but I'm not, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what I expected to find, but I didn't expect to find the beauty of God's presence there in the way that I did. Ferguson's a community made up of real people who care about each other, who care about their children, and who care about their community. And we had a chance to meet some of those people, uh, a group of young people who had started an organization after Michael Brown's death called Hands Up United. And these young people were there the day that Michael Brown was killed. They were there seeing his body lie in the street for four hours. Um, they were there during the aftermath of Michael Brown's death and saw what had happened. And they were there when the decision to not charge Darren Wilson was made. And we were sitting in a room with this group of young black men and women, all in their early 20s or late teens from Ferguson, Missouri. And there was one man in particular whose name was T-Dub. He's a former drug dealer. I think at the time he was still involved in a gang and a rapper. He was a well-known rapper in the St. Louis area. And we were sitting in a circle as he told us about his experiences growing up in Ferguson and what he'd witnessed the day that Michael Brown was killed. He told us stories of his own interactions with the police. And he told us um, about what he felt compelled to do after Michael Brown was killed and after the police and the community responded the way that they did. And he started talking about his love for his community. And he spoke with such compassion about wanting to see a better world for his neighborhood. He started talking about his dreams for his children and how he wanted them to have a different experience growing up than he'd had. He was sharing about some of the plans and programs that he and the others from Hands Up United had started uh, to support and care for their community. This small group of people had given up a lot, and they were helping the people in their neighborhood out of a deep sense of love for their people and a sense of compassion for their community. And in that moment, as T-Dub was sharing his heart for his community, I realized that I was surprised to hear him talking like this. I was surprised that this black man, gang member, tattoos all over, this man that looked a certain way and talked a certain way, I was surprised that he was speaking with such compassion and such clarity and such vision. And I realized in that moment that I needed to repent of my pride and my prejudice. I needed to repent of the thinking that this person who was very different from me, but still created in the image of God, had nothing to teach me about compassion and sacrifice and love. I realized that this man who looked nothing like the pictures of Jesus that we usually see in our churches or in popular artwork actually looked more like Jesus in the way he was living life sacrificially for his community than I do or than many other Christians I know. Now, at that point, I'd already been pursuing racial justice and reconciliation for quite a while, and I'd already dealt a bit with my own racial bias and prejudice. I knew that was there. I, I didn't have it all together, but I was surprised at how much this struck me. Um, something new was happening here. God was uh, doing a new thing. God was offering me a new invitation. And this shift um, eventually led to me changing my focus a bit with InterVarsity. So um, 
Rather than focusing on programs to bring students into the city to talk about justice and race, I wanted to go out into campus and talk about, have these conversations on campus. So my title um, shifted from urban program director to area specialist for scripture engagement and racial justice. I started spending my time on campus with staff and students, helping them understand the importance that Christians talk about race and justice and that we look at scripture to find the answers. And as I spent more time doing that on campus, I got some opportunities to do that in churches. And then I felt this shift in my call from college students to grown-ups in church. Um, and that shift is eventually what led me and my family to move here to Durham. I decided to apply to Duke Divinity School so that I could be more prepared to work in a church setting. And after I was admitted, God paved the way for Mark to get a job here, for us to sell our house in Cleveland, find a house here in Durham. And in July, we moved. This shift in my life started out small, like a seed being planted in the ground. It felt as though God had been preparing the soil, preparing my soul for years. And now it was ready for God to plant the seed. And this small seed grew and grew until it got so big that it changed the trajectory of my family's life. The Christmas story is like this. It starts out small, literally as small as a few cells growing inside a woman's body. At first, it doesn't seem like much has changed, but in reality, there is a huge shift going on here, a shift that's going to change the trajectory of the entire world. So to highlight this shift, Luke's gospel doesn't start with John baptizing in the Jordan River, and it doesn't start with God speaking to Joseph or even to Mary. He starts earlier than that with Zechariah serving in the temple. Luke's original readers would have understood the significance of this, the temple is the center of the universe for God's people. It's the center of their identity as God's chosen people, and it's the place where God's presence dwells and where people can come into his presence. And the temple's designed to remind people of God's presence with them. Inside, there are all kinds of design features, um, objects that are meant to remind people of the Garden of Eden. There are candles burning 24-7 to remind people of God's constant presence with them. But the temple is also designed to remind people of God's holiness. Now, the word holy is one that we don't hear much today outside of a religious context, unless you live in my house, because for some reason Isaiah has decided that holy moly or holy cow are the phrases he will use to describe any surprise. <laughs> but we usually don't hear that. And within a religious context, when we do hear it, I think we often understand what holiness is. Holiness is not moralism or moral superiority. And holiness is not simply the idea of being set apart for a special purpose. Um, the word does have a connection to moral purity and to being set apart, but there's so much more to this word. The word holiness is a way of talking about God's character and nature as the most unique, powerful, beautiful, and good being in the entire universe. God's holiness is connected to his unique role as the creator and author of all life and beauty. God's holiness is also connected to his character as the source of all moral goodness and purity. God is unique. There is none like him. No one else has these attributes of being perfectly good and beautiful, being the source of all life. And for that reason, God is holy. That's what makes him holy. And God's holiness, this perfect beauty and goodness and purity and life, is so intense that if anything impure gets too close, it's destroyed. 
It's kind of like the sun. The sun is good and beautiful and we need it, but if you get too close, you're in trouble. In the immortal words of the band, they might be giants, yo-ho, it's hot. The sun is not a place where we could live. But here on earth, there'd be no life without the light it gives. So it is with God's holy presence. So we have the temple uh, designed to remind you of God's presence with his people and to remind you of God's holiness, his set-apartness, his otherness. And in part, it does that by its architecture. And you can see this um, diagram. If you were to approach the temple from outside the courts, you'd first come to the court of the Gentiles. And this is where anybody, male or female, Jew or Gentile, could come. But that's as close to God's presence as most people could get. If you go in a little bit further, you'll come into the court of, the, uh, the court of women, which is where Jewish women could come. If you go in a little further, you get to the court of Israel, where all Israelite men could come. If you go in a little further, you get to the court of priests, where the priests were allowed to be, but no one else. And then the priests were allowed to go into the holy place to make sacrifices, um, but that's as far as many of them could get. And then in the very middle, in the very center, um, is the holy of holies, the most holy place, the place where God's presence is the most concentrated and powerful. And that place is so holy that only one priest, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, was allowed to go into that place. And even that one priest, after they'd gone through all of the rites of purification, they might even die going into God's presence because that's how holy God's presence is. So the temple reminds us of God's holiness through the building itself, through the sacrifices and rituals of purity, and through the role of the priests. Priests' entire life was dedicated to keeping themselves pure enough to enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people. So for centuries, God's people had lived, or for centuries, God had lived among his people, but with his holy presence concentrated in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and this temple system with its priests and purity rituals and sacrifices, this was the only way that God's people could approach him. So with that context in mind, let's look again at Luke chapter 1. Um, if you want to look in your Bibles, you can. We're going to start with verse 6. Um, as a priest, Zechariah would have had an important place in society, and he and Elizabeth would have likely had status and respect in the community. We see that they had no children, and sometimes that indicates God's judgment, but we see in verse 6 that this couple was righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So Zechariah is in the temple burning incense, and this angel comes to him. And the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah's response is, um, how can I be so sure of this? I'm pretty old. And um, yeah, my, my wife Elizabeth, that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> you need to give me a little more proof here. And the angel responds by saying, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent from there to give you this message. 
And now, um, I just told you some amazing news, but you're going to stop talking now because your response is ridiculous. <laughs> An angel just told this priest that the Messiah is coming, the one they've been waiting for, and that he, Zachariah, is going to be the father of the one coming to prepare the way for the Lord. Zachariah's job is to connect people to God and teach them about God's promises. But now, Zachariah is not going to be able to tell anyone this news. Zachariah, the person with status, position, privilege, and the authority to speak the words of God, didn't believe God's messenger. And so Zachariah was, is not going to be the one to share the good news with the world, that the Messiah is coming. So then, in verse 26, we shift away from the temple, away from the center of Israel's political and spiritual identity, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, to this little out-of-the-way region called Galilee and a little podunk town called Nazareth, and we meet a young unmarried girl. And Gabriel comes to her and says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. And Mary's response is not, um, how can I know this, but how is this going to happen? Zechariah didn't believe. Mary believes, she just doesn't understand. But even though she doesn't understand in her, humil in her humility and in her trust of God, she says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. So through this contrast between Zechariah and Mary, Luke is showing us that God is turning the world upside down. There is a holy shift happening here, and Mary is the one who gets to tell us about it. She is the one, not the priest, but the young, unwed, pregnant teenager who preaches the first sermon telling us the amazing news of this shift that is happening. My soul glorifies the Lord. The mighty one has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Everything is changing. The world is turning upside down. With this shift, the temple will no longer be the center of the universe for God's people. The priests are no longer necessary in order for people to come into God's presence. God's holiness is no longer confined to the holy of holies in the temple. With Gabriel's news to Mary, we learn that God is coming to live among his people in a new way. But he's not coming through the doors of the temple. He's coming through a woman's vagina. <laughs> now, I recognize it might feel a little uncomfortable to have the word vagina said in church, <laughs> but this is the reality. God chose a woman's body to be his home for nine months, and Jesus came into the world the same way that every other baby has ever come into the world, through a woman's body with all of its secret places and its messiness and its fluids and its pain. As with much of scripture, we sanitize the nativity story. Isaiah, my five-year-old, um, had a pageant at his um, preschool on Friday. Typical Christmas pageant with Mary and Joseph and the innkeeper and all that. And some of the paperwork that went home telling us about this said... Um, we'd like to invite you to join us on Friday for a Christmas pageant where we will reenact the birth of Christ. <laughs> and I thought, wow, <laughs> that's, for, that's something. That seems a little intense for five-year-olds. <laughs> I knew what they'd meant, but we have so sanitized this story that we skip right over the birthing process, which is not 
a fun or easy one. This print is by a Christian artist named Scott Erickson. And I'd like to read what, read what he wrote and shared with this picture when he shared it on social media. What does it say about a God who's willing to be this vulnerable with us? To come into the world through the statistical risk of ancient childbearing. To be attached by a placenta for nourishment and life to its own creation. To wait and grow in the human womb. To also be fearfully and wonderfully made just like we are. Grace comes to us floating in embryonic fluid, slowly forming and taking shape, embedded in the uterine wall of a Middle Eastern teenage woman. Friends, who would ever make up a story like that? The God who spoke the universe into being, who led his people in battle against their enemies, the God whose holy presence is so intense that even priests fear for their lives when they get too close, this same God became a fetus. This same God was born a baby, a baby who needed to have his diapers changed and nursed at his mother's breast. The God who created everything became completely dependent on his creation. Why? Why would an all-powerful God do this? God did this because God's intent has always been to live among his people, to be with them, and to make them as good and beautiful and pure as he is. And somehow, by entering into the world as a human baby, God is now able to live among his people and give them access to all that is good and true and beautiful about him. As it says in Colossians, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. The story of Christmas is that the holiness of God, this perfect beauty and power and goodness, has shifted from the holy of holies in the temple into the body of a woman. Everything has changed. Once Mary gave birth to Jesus, she would have been ritually unclean and unable to enter the temple for more than a month. And yet here is Mary holding the Son of God. All of God's power and goodness and beauty is now resting in the arms of a woman who just gave birth. In Luke 2, we see that God sent angels to tell shepherds that the Messiah had been born. So the shepherds find the Son of God lying in a manger in Bethlehem. These shepherds would not have been allowed in the temple until after they'd gone through many purification rituals. Their job would have made them almost perpetually unclean. And even if they went through all those rites and became clean, they would only be able, be able to go as close to God's presence as the court of Israel. And then a priest would have to take their sacrifice in further. But now, God's holy presence has shifted from the temple to this baby lying in the manger, so these unclean shepherds are able to walk right into the presence of God. In Matthew's gospel, we see the Magi from the east coming to find the Messiah. These foreign astrologers would not have been able to get past the court of Gentiles in the temple, but here they are, bowing down before the Son of God, offering their gifts directly to him with no priest needed. The Son of God, by coming to earth as a fetus, growing inside a woman's body, and being born as a human baby, has made the holiness of God accessible to an unwed mother, uneducated shepherds, and foreigners who practice a different religion. Holy shift. I have a clip from a, a Bible Project video um, that does a good job of explaining a little bit what's going on here. So let's watch this. Hey, 
we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity and bringing everything back to life. Friends, this is what Christmas is all about. It's about the beauty and goodness and life of God coming out of the temple into the body of Jesus and through his body transferring that goodness and beauty and life into the broken and dead and unclean places in this world. Even the things and the people that we think are unclean. If we only tell the sanitized version of the nativity story, that impacts our whole theology. Because we tend then to think that God is only present in the clean, sanitized parts of our world or our lives. But God has entered into the unclean, the messy, the grittiness of our lives and of our world. And this is good news for those of us whose lives are messy and gritty and unclean. And it should be a challenge for those of us who like to think of ourselves as clean and proper and righteous. 
If you think of yourself that way, if that's you, if you feel this little sense of pride inside you because you've followed all the rules and you've made the right decisions, you've worked hard to earn what you have, and if you have this little voice inside you that says you're just a little bit better than those other people, you're just a little bit closer to God, then you've completely misunderstood what Christmas is all about. And that's not a condemnation. That's an invitation to understand Jesus' birth in a new way and to see God in the world with new eyes. We are invited to see God in those places that good and clean and righteous people tend not to expect to find him. I found God in Ferguson. I, found, I got a glimpse of God's holiness through a former drug-dealing rapper named T-Dub. Usually the people who most effectively show us the reality of God with us are not the priests in the temple, not the pastors and the elders and the seminary professors. They're the unwed teenage mothers, the refugees, the homeless, the uneducated, and those that many of us would consider unclean. And I think that it's not until we realize that that we can really respond to God's call on our lives. Through the nativity, we have access to God's holiness and an invitation to become holy as he is holy. Now, this call to be holy is not a call to become morally superior to the rest of the world. And the call to be holy is not a call to isolate ourselves from the world in order to protect ourselves from corruption and remain pure and set apart. The call to be holy is a call to be present in the world, to seek after and to reflect God's beauty, goodness, mercy, and grace in a world that desperately needs goodness, beauty, mercy, and grace. Because the impurity in the world no longer has the power to make us unclean. Through the Holy Spirit, God has granted us the power to go out and touch things and transfer that goodness to them. To bring life and healing and hope wherever we go. For many of us, we need to remember that throughout the Gospels, Jesus reserves his harshest words of judgment for those who thought that holiness meant being morally superior and set apart. The priests and Levites, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes and the teachers of the law, the ones whose very job it was to connect people to God, those were the ones that Jesus spoke most harshly to. Because their agenda is often to keep God's holy presence confined in the temple where they have the authority and the control to decide who gets in and who stays out. But God is turning the world upside down and it doesn't work that way anymore. Because of this shift... Because God's holy presence became flesh in the baby Jesus, regular, even unclean people, shepherds, foreigners, fishermen, women, children, the sick, the poor, refugees, the widows, any one of us and all of us can come into God's presence and be transformed by God's holiness. Are there dark and unclean places in the world that you don't expect to find God's holy presence? Are there neighborhoods in Durham that you don't like to drive through? God's holy presence is there. Do you see thousands of Central Americans on the southern U.S. border and feel fear or disgust because those people are unclean? God's holy presence is there in the midst of them. It could be that the place that you feel is too dark and unclean for God's presence is you. Maybe there are things in your past that you don't feel God can forgive. Or maybe even right now there are things in your life that you feel disqualify you from dwelling in God's presence. 
The wonder of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God came to earth in the flesh as a baby so that you can come into God's holy presence. And because of what God has done in Jesus, God's holiness won't destroy you. It will transform you. As we go through these next few days um, celebrating the birth of Christ, I pray that when we look upon the beauty and goodness and grace and mercy and love of Jesus, that we will recognize that it's those things that make him holy. And let us rejoice in the fact that when the Son of God came in the flesh, he came to give us access to that same holiness, that same beauty and goodness and grace and mercy and love. And I pray that this Christmas and throughout the year, we would seek after God's holiness and that we would seek it and find it in the places and in the people that we think are too dark and too dirty and too broken to find the beauty and the goodness of God's presence. And I pray that we would eagerly look forward to that day when the whole earth is God's temple and God's holiness flows out from all creation. I pray that as we celebrate this first coming of Christ, that we will longingly watch for his second coming when all things will be made completely new, when the river of God will flow out from God's presence, immersing all of God's creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Let's pray. God, help us to stand in awe of what you have done by coming to earth, the eternal Son of God in human flesh. Help us to be amazed Pray that over these next few days, you would just, um, your Holy Spirit would break into um, the good and fun celebrations with family and friends of Christmas. Break into that and remind us this is about a huge holy shift, that your presence is now accessible to us and to others, and that your presence exists in places that we wouldn't think to find it. Thank you, Lord, for coming to earth as a baby. Amen. Amen.